Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast, unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, a corporate exec turned author who has recently written a series of books about topics we don't often talk about. Things like death, grief, not having kids, and the unexplained power doctors often wield over us. Apparently, some of my books have made some people feel a little uncomfortable, but I felt that I wanted to have far more conversations around weird, wonderful, and sometimes taboo topics. So I reached out to some interesting people and asked them just one question. If there is one topic that you'd love society to talk more about, what would it be and why? And what they've shared with me has been amazing. So let's dive in and see where the conversation takes us. So just as athletes run into a stadium where there's people cheering them on, encouraging them, they perform better in that environment, right? And it's the same for us. We all need to have our own cheer squad around us. Maggie Palmer founded Pep Talk Her with the mission of closing the gender pay gap. The Pep Talk Her app helps you track your career successes. It uses artificial intelligence to coach confidence and negotiation and to give you a pep talk when you need it most. Her business pep talk, her team, runs corporate programming for brands including JP Morgan and Revlon. They work in-house with companies to retain high potential staff, running programs around confidence negotiation and fostering an inclusive workplace. Whilst an Aussie at heart, Maggie is currently located in New York and she lectures at Columbia University and Barnard College. In her former life, where I met her, she was an award-winning journalist turned entrepreneur. She spent 15 years as a journalist and foreign correspondent, travelling from Syria to Italy telling stories for networks including BBC World, CNBC, Channel 7 and Vogue. Maggie is a dynamo and such a delight to chat to. I think you're going to look forward to this conversation as I've been looking forward to it all week. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Sure is. If there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Oh, so many things. I feel like we should talk about money. I feel like we should talk about the pay gap. But I think the biggest thing for me, honestly, Michelle, is imposter syndrome. Oh, what a good subject. (laughs) This is awesome. For those that don't know what imposter syndrome is, can you define it for me? Yeah. So... For anyone who's ever felt like maybe in their career, you know, I was just lucky. If any of you feel like, oh, it was a bit of a mistake that I got promoted or if you feel, oh, I'm sort of vibing that I'm a bit of a fraud in this current situation, if you've answered yes to any of those sort of questions, chances are you've experienced imposter syndrome. So it's this phenomenon that was actually researched back in the 60s and 70s and it's basically this idea where you know, as individuals, we struggle to internalize our accomplishments, right? Where you sort of have difficulty, I guess, accepting your successes and your achievements. And it's interesting, Michelle, that like 70% of the population admit to experiencing imposter syndrome, which I think is really interesting. My experience with it is it's actually more prevalent for females as well. Is that true from the statistics aspect or is that just an assumption? Anecdotally, yes, the jury's still out data-wise as to whether that's the case. But what we do know is that men and women experience imposter syndrome differently. When we experience imposter syndrome, 
we're more likely to sort of hold ourselves back as a result. But often when men experience imposter syndrome, they're more likely to sort of increase the bravado, I suppose, and sort of push through it to an extent. So the way that we respond is very different. So men and women both feel that experience at certain times of feeling like a fraud, of feeling like an imposter. But the ways that we react to that is very, very different. Yeah, interesting. So I've not heard that described like that, actually. That's, uh, that makes sense. I saw the first, um, as I say, with, you know, women's groups and different um, mates in professional settings, we talk about it often. And, you know, generally it is in the work sense that we would talk about it. But the first guy I'd ever heard really admit it, especially on a public forum, was Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian. Atlassian. And he stood on the stage at um, the TEDx um, in Sydney and he talked about imposter syndrome. And I was like, wow. Good on you, Mike. That's amazing. But he also referred to it in his job and everything. You know, there's a nuance there around similarity with fake it till you make it, I guess. But he talked about, you know, waking up next to his wife. He said, I have four kids and I still wake up next to her and think, you know, like, is she going to leave me? Am I like, how did I get here? <laughs> you know, is this just a made up life, which I think was fabulous. And so grounding to hear a guy like that actually talk about it so openly. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? When we hear other people sort of vulnerably share about their story and their experience, it's so powerful because in a lot of ways it gives us all permission in a way to speak vulnerably and openly. And, you know, Mike Cannon Brooks, obviously a hugely successful entrepreneur, multi-billionaire, I believe, you know, founded an amazing tech company that's gone on to, you know, my company, Pep Talker. We actually use Atlassian software as well. So he makes my life easier on a daily basis, which is nice. And it's funny, Michelle, like back when I was a, a journalist working at a big global media company and I was poached to go and work at another company and, and I took the job and I felt like a massive imposter. I didn't quite understand why I'd got the call in the first place. And then I took the job and then I was at the orientation or whatever for this new program. And my boss at the time took me aside and he said, hey, let's let's get a coffee. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool, cool. And he goes, hey, um, Maggie, what's going on? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, look, you just don't really seem like yourself. Do you want to tell me what's going on? And then I just basically spilled the beans. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Why don't I get the job? These people are amazing. Why am I here? Like, this is an outrage. Like, I don't deserve to be here. And he was like, oh, you're experiencing imposter syndrome. And I was like, what? Like, I'd never even heard of it. I was so naive. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, yeah. No, don't worry. I've been there too. And he's like, and this is a guy in his 60s now. And he was like, every day during my professional career, I have thought and feared that at any moment the imposter police would come and knock, knock, knock on my door and kind of like drag me out of my office um, because they'd realise that I don't belong and that I don't know what I'm doing and that I'm a total fraud and I shouldn't have got the job. And I was like, what? But you're amazing and you're crushing it. And like, what? And he's like, yeah, guess what? Everyone is feeling the same way, Maggie. And I was like, for me, it was like this, this revelation. And I don't, maybe it's the same for you when you heard that um, TED talk from Mike. It's like, when you hear someone else tell their story and you resonate, you're like, oh, I'm not weird that I feel like this. Like yeah. I'm not the only one that feels like an imposter or that yeah. doubts myself, you know? Oh, no, it's what a fabulous story. And what a beautiful man to like recognize that and actually pull you aside and talk you through that and give his insights. Cause I'm sure that instilled so much confidence. Then you went in and just rocked it from then on in, right? I look, I mean, listen, still to this day, I still have moments of imposter syndrome, but I think like him just kind of like 
getting below the veneer of a boss and a successful human and just kind of like being really raw and honest. I was like, whoa, it honestly took me aback. And I was like, I thought he was perfect. I thought he had his shit together. And then turns out he was just like, you know, on the inside, a little bit scared and (laughs) fearful and made mistakes and had successes and everything in between like the rest of us. And for me, I was just kind of like, oh, cool. So I'm normal. That's good. Mm -hmm. And so for anyone listening, if you're like, Oh, I feel like 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 that. Like, welcome, welcome to the club that Michelle yeah. and I are both in as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, and I think the um, interesting thing is though around us talking about this more and more. And I do wonder whether you know the fabulous Brene Brown has got a fair bit to do with that around the vulnerability piece and us being more comfortable in our work sense to talk about kind of our failures and elements. And I think. The tech space and startup world, you know, in the last sort of few years when I've been more and more involved in that, the thing that I've learned the most is that whole iteration type stuff, fail fast, iterate, change, and the way that their business models relied on that kind of process versus old school, traditional, where you, you know, you're not supposed to stuff up. Like it's not good if you make a massive mistake, it's not seen as a good thing, where this whole kind of generational shift has made it really different in the workforce. So having someone that kind of is comfortable to say, well, I don't know what I'm doing, but actually I'm here willing to learn. And that's kind of the approach I've been taking, I guess, in the last two years, right, where I've changed massively in my career and doing lots of different things. And I just have this playful approach that's kind of going, well, I'm just going to learn and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm happy to say I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm here to learn and I'll get better. And so how can we approach, you know, that sort of mentality I guess in our everyday lives and be better for it right well and it's interesting you mentioned Brene Brown so for anyone who hasn't read her stuff I'd highly recommend her books and also her podcast is very accessible and really interesting and I live in I'm an Aussie clearly from my voice but I I live in New York City now and a couple of years ago Brene Brown came into the co-working space where I work from and she spoke to us and it was really fascinating she told this story that some of your listeners may have heard Michelle she told the story of when she needed to have a very basically brutal conversation with a friend of hers about how actually she didn't want her friends to come to her holiday drinks if she was drinking because this friend was clearly an alcoholic and her behaviour disintegrated to the point where it sort of impacted Brené and her family and she didn't feel comfortable. And so she had to have this conversation with this friend and it was very awkward, very challenging. It didn't particularly go very well. It was so interesting hearing this person who's obviously got one of the most listened to TED Talks, this incredible empire of books and education. And, you know, she coaches a lot of the top CEOs that a lot of your listeners would be familiar with. And she sort of shared this story about when she had to practice what she preached and have a really, really tough conversation with a friend and be really vulnerable about how her behavior impacted her and how she loved her and she wanted to care for her through this. But at the same time, she had a boundary. And the boundary was, I actually don't want things to get out of control at my holiday party. And as a consequence, I actually don't want you here if you're drinking. That's a really tough thing to say, Mm -hmm. you know, and I drink alcohol. A lot of my friends drink alcohol. And I think for better or worse, a lot of us probably don't have the most healthy relationship with booze. And so to kind of have that conversation, I personally would find really, really tough. But at the same time, acknowledging what are my boundaries? What do I want them to be? And then having the confidence to say, this is what it is. This is this is how I want to live my life. This is how my family, my household works. And you can either work within those boundaries Or you can totally choose to work outside of those boundaries. That's no problem, no shade. But like 
with respect, you're not welcome in those boundaries. And that's something, and listen, I haven't got this perfect, but it is something I think about a lot is like, what are those boundaries that I want to enforce and how do I enforce them in a way that is loving, respectful, but also kind to myself and Mm. sort of putting yourself first and saying, this is what I need and being willing to step into the unknown and have those conversations because that is tough. Yeah, what a fabulous example though. And just say thinking about that, trying to bring it in obviously to your personal life, but then also in your business. So in terms of setting boundaries around your staff and stuff as well, I think it's really important and that's a, a fabulous thing to sort of talk and think about. So how do you overcome it? What are your sort of tips and tricks for people to overcome that, I guess, especially in a work sense? And I want to get into the work that you do in the space with pep talk her and you know the people that you help because you're doing such amazing work in that space maggie so we want to kind of dig into that a little bit more as well but how do we overcome or at least maybe just live with it a little bit easier to <laughs> our imposter syndrome in your view yeah and and you know this idea of living with it is such a good point and i think you know there's a framework that we teach at pep talk her when it comes to our corporate clients and our consumer audience as well and the concept i like doing things in threes and i love an acronym so the acronym that we like to use is art so it's a r t so you're going to acknowledge the imposter syndrome we're going to replace it and we're going to start to track our successes. And so what does that mean? So acknowledge, replace, and track. So the first thing is when you feel like a bit of a fraud, when you feel like you're out of your depth, like the first thing is to acknowledge, okay, what's actually going on here? And chances are, if you do for-profit work, if you're being paid to do a job, if you have the job, if the paycheck is still coming in, chances are you are actually quite good at your job. Most places are not charities and they are not in the business of paying people money who are no good or paying people money who do not do their job well. So if you are at the moment listening to this and you are being paid, chances are you're actually probably quite good at your job, right? So if you feel like a bit of a fraud and if you're kind of feeling these vibes come up for you where you're like, oh, what am I even doing here? This is a joke. I shouldn't have been promoted. Just stop and just be like, okay, what's really going on here? Am I experiencing that thing called imposter syndrome that Maggie and Michelle talked about? And if you're not sure, one thing that I love to do, a little cheeky cheeky trick, is I love people to get out their cell phone and I love you to text a friend, right? Because sometimes, you know, we don't know what we don't know. We kind of live in this little bubble, right? And so actually what's really powerful is if you text someone external to your own personal bubble and ask them, hey, what are the qualities about me that you think are like totally epic. What do you think is the best quality that I have? What is my biggest strength? Just send them a little two-line text or WhatsApp, an email, whatever it is, and ask other people because sometimes we are, well, often, unfortunately, we are our own worst critic. Mm. And people that love and respect us around us, turns out, are probably cheering you on. Turns out, probably love you, respect you, value you, couldn't live without you. And so sometimes we actually just need to stop, acknowledge what's going on, the A in art, acknowledge, and get some external feedback, right? And see what other people think. Because if Mm. you're doubting yourself, let's not trust yourself. Let's start to trust what other people's views are of us, right? Particularly people that love, trust, respect, and support us, right? Mm. So go to your best And I think we overanalyze, don't we? Every element, you get in your head way too much and overthink stuff. And you spiral, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, I stuffed up that sale. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. Oh my gosh, the whole team's going to get sacked. Oh my goodness, the business is going to collapse. Like you sort of just like often we catastrophize, particularly when we're experiencing imposter syndrome. So the first thing is to acknowledge possibly you are experiencing imposter syndrome. So sort of stop yourself 
and just acknowledge that that might be what's going on and then get some feedback, right? And then the second thing you want to do, moving on to the A, the R in art, the R of replace. We want to replace those negative thoughts, those imposter syndrome vibes. We want to actually replace them with something positive. So if we have someone who texts us, who says, oh my gosh, you're the best multitasker I know. You're the most impressive salesperson I've ever met. You're the most compassionate friend I have. We want to replace those negative fraudster thoughts with these new positive inputs that we've been given from people in our circle, right? So it's really important to have a circle of cheerleaders around you so that when you are down, they can help lift you up, Mm. right? So just as athletes run into a stadium where there's people cheering them on, encouraging them, they perform better in that environment, right? And it's the same for us. We all need to have our own cheer squad around us. And, you know, one of the best things to do when you're feeling like an imposter Get your cheer squad to help you replace the negative thoughts with positive ones. Great idea. But you want to acknowledge, yeah, we want to replace the negative thoughts with the positive. And then finally, we want to track. So what we want to start doing is track your successes, track your wins, because it's very easy to go through a year and, you know, just you go, 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 work, work, work. And at no point you actually stop smell the roses and be like, oh my gosh, we hit our goals. Or, oh my gosh, I onboarded that staff member and it's working out really well. Or, oh my goodness, we launched that product and it's actually going okay. Personally, Michelle, for better or worse, I actually don't know what I had for dinner last Thursday. Like I couldn't tell you. I've got a bit of a bad memory in that respect. I I don't know what I had for dinner last Thursday. I don't know what shoes I wore two weeks ago. And so in the the same vein, if I have a performance review in six months' time, I'm not going to remember what I did on the 1st of March. I'm not going to remember what I did on the 27th of January. How Mm. would I? Like there's a lot that's gone on, right? Mm. So you've got to track them as you go. And because what happens is our our brains are a funny creature. But if you actually stop every day, once a week, something like that, and just reflect and be like, okay, what have I actually done in the last week? And maybe you got to inbox zero. Maybe you onboarded an intern. Maybe you made a new sale for the business. Maybe someone in your class, if you're a teacher, couldn't read. And, you know, this week they were able to read three words. Whatever success or a win looks like for you and your workplace, track those wins because they might seem little and they might seem inconsequential. But what happens is if you track them every week, at the end of a year, you're going to have 40, 50, 60 things written down that illustrate how awesome you are. And so when you're feeling like an imposter, instead of just being in your head about it, you'll have a list of achievements Data. that you can reflect yeah. back on. You know, yeah, the data, fabulous. exactly. So yeah, simple. So that's like, yeah, really I mean, good. look, it is simple, but it's in a psychology, Great. right? This idea of the nudge theory. If we yes. kind of want to nudge ourselves to a better place, it's not about transformation overnight. It's about tiny baby steps bit by mm. bit by bit every day that add up to a lot. And that's the reason and that's the premise behind mm. the Pep Talk Her app. And so, you know, it's free on Apple and Android and you can download it and it will prompt you. It'll prompt you three times a week to reflect on your success. And, you know, once a week you might ignore it and go, Maggie, go away with your app. That's cool. But I hope that once a week you will enter a win. And it might be that you screenshot an email from your boss. You might screenshot some positive feedback from a client. You might take a photo of an event. You might just write down our Google ranking is up three points. Whatever it is, pop it in the app. And then it's all in the one place. So when you go for that performance review, when you go for a new job, 
when you're updating your LinkedIn, you've got all those data points that you can kind of reflect on. And that's also very helpful as well in moving through imposter syndrome. Such good advice, Amy. you like really tangible, great stuff for anyone to do. And, you know, equally, like you talked to a lot of examples about when you're working for others, but if you have your own business or even just, you know, like me doing a new project with a ceramics element, I kind of forget that I've only really been doing it for 14 months and someone kind of reminded me that the other day. I was like, yeah, I guess, because I'm on such a learning trajectory. I'm really tough on myself because I'm like, oh, yeah, but I don't know that yet. and I'm not good at that and I'm shit at this. And they're like, whoa, but look what you've done in that. I'm like, okay, it's, it is nice to reflect and also, you know, have, as you say, that data to look back on. So some really good advice. If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat. I want to get into now the work that you do all day, every day, which is very much around the pay gap and um, trying to raise the parity there. So talk to me about, I want to hear some statistics because a lot of people fling about what's kind of going on and there's no pay gap and there's no issue. So I'd love to hear some data in that from people understanding what the main issues are in this space. So yeah, so when it comes to the gender pay gap, there's a bunch of different things that cause the gap. So depending on what country you live in around the world, on average in the developed world, the gender pay gap sits at around 20%. And so what that means is women are more likely to be paid on average 20% less than white men for the same work, right? And so the other thing that's important to note about the gender pay gap is, is that for women of colour, that gap is even bigger. So it's an enormous problem that we need to solve for everyone. You know, it's not just a women's issue either, because what we know is that if we can solve the gender pay gap, actually the GDP, the money that countries are producing that's in circulation, the money that's around actually will increase. So it's a net positive for society and for the economy if we can actually solve this problem. And the other thing as well is from a capitalist perspective, if you have a superannuation fund, if you have a 401k retirement fund, if you own shares or ETFs or whatever, we know that companies that have women in the C-suite perform and give to investors a better net profit than companies that don't have women in the C-suite. And so if you put your investor hat on, you're like, well, actually, all of us should be really rallying for this, right? Because it's good for all of us. It's good for men. It's good for women. It's good for investors. And so let's take a step back and look at the, the, the pay gap itself, right? So I was at, a, at an event recently that Time's Up put on and they had one of the leading experts in the world from Harvard University speak to us about this. And she put it really well. She said that, you know, ultimately there's three major reasons for the gender pay gap. So the first reason is time out of the workforce. So women are more likely to take more time out of the workforce for children or caring responsibilities than say men. So that's one factor. So you can take that into account and that 20% gap gets a little bit smaller. And then the second thing is, is that women are more likely to go into jobs that on average are paid less. And so, for example, we see more women in, say, childcare or nursing than, for example, stockbroking. And so those jobs that women are typically socialised to go into are paid less or valued less, for whatever reason, by society than jobs that are typically, you know, popularised by men. 
So if you take that into account, the gender pay gap shrinks a little bit more as well. So you can you can actually control for those two factors. Mm-hmm. But the third reason for the gender pay gap and the thing that we cannot control for and that we cannot account for is unconscious bias and discrimination. And so that is the point and that is the big issue when it comes to the gender pay gap that I'm really interested in solving in particular. So if you take a step back again, if we look at kids, So children around the age of seven or eight, there's been three separate studies in three different countries that have proven the same thing. And that is that little girls get paid less allowance or pocket money than little boys. So if you just think about that, like parents are not inherently bad humans. They're not doing this on purpose. This is an unconscious thing that happened. And so what researchers think is happening, the thing that they hypothesize is happening is that parents, for better or worse, are saying, well, Johnny helped chop the firewood. So that job of chopping firewood is tougher than, say, helping prepare a meal. Yeah. For Mm -hmm. example. Yeah. And and this is being very general here. So there's that delta that exists in childhood. Mm. And so, you know, we basically don't stand a chance because, again, coming back to that idea of incremental change, if that is the behaviour that we see role modelled and that we experience from a young age, it only gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we go through childhood and then into the professional world as well. And so, you know, some people will say, well, you know, it's just because the gender pay gap is only because women have children. That's just statistically not true. And it's even if you look at graduates, for example, so people who've just graduated from university or college, there's a few exceptions, but most people at that point do not have children. And so that isn't really a factor. And yet, even at that point in our careers, we see that there's a gender pay gap even then. And so even if that's only a couple of thousand bucks at that point, it just gets Mm. bigger and bigger and bigger as the raises, you know, you might get a 3% raise or a 5% raise, and it's all based on that base salary. And so you can see if, if it's different at that base level, at the graduate point for men and women, that is how that gap just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, as parents, obviously, that's a great one to point out. So that's first and foremost, you know, to be aware of and to not do that. But then as employees and employers, you know, in terms of if you've got your own staff or teams or you have your own businesses, what are some tips from you and what do people need to do to be better? Because there's an element here that's a bit of an undercurrent that kind of comes up for me as well is that not only do we have two people, so we've got two sort of executives, I just think about like sales teams for me, you've got two people that are doing exactly the same job, one's male, one's female. Let's just say, for example, that they've both got the same years of experience in the industry or the business, but back to the point about what we started this conversation around imposter syndrome, you've got a guy that's probably 50% qualified, but actually has 80 or 90%, 80 or 90% confidence. And it's like, I can do the job. Yep. I, I mean, I've got a promotion because that's again, statistically, they're the kind of things that come out all the time is that men will always put their hand up, you know, long before they're ready to do it because they're, you know, more confident than a woman might be 90 or 95% ready to go. And still will say, oh, no, I'm not ready yet. I can't do the job. And so I you can say anecdotally, I would see that all the time in the thousands of people that I have managed over the years. And so then you've got a scenario that someone's more confident in the job, even though they might probably equally exactly the same level or experience. Why is it that we're still seeing that companies still pay pay them differently? 
And why is that acceptable? Well, it's not acceptable and it's technically illegal. But, you know, the reality is that it still happens. And certainly in Australia, the Women and Gender Equality Agency has data to prove this. And so companies that have more than 100 employees have to report to this government body what is their pay gap. Right. And and also what is their leadership gap in terms of what does that look like? And so that's the other thing, right, is that when you have more men in the leadership positions, typically leadership positions come with a bigger pay packet, which is nice. But often women don't see themselves in those roles. And so they see no trajectory to get there. And so that causes a whole nother spiral effect. And so from a company perspective, you know, one of the best things and one of the most important things to do is to be aware that this exists. You probably think you're very fair, just like parents think that they're very fair and equitable. And for whatever reason, this gap, as I say, creeps in at childhood for kids. And so let's hypothesize that then it's not unusual that that is probably creeping into your organization as well. There are very few organizations that have no gender pay gap. Very, very few organizations. So regular pay audits are a really great way to start to tackle that. So best practice is typically to have at least a pay audit done once a year to account for gaps that may have crept in from a base salary perspective or indeed from a bonus perspective based on gender and also increasingly race as well. That's really important. But, you know, having these conversations is really important. The other thing that I would like to see abolished is pay secrecy clauses. You know, in Australia, interestingly, you can still have clauses in contracts that means that let's say you're working for Bank ABC I could work at Bank ABC and John could work at Bank ABC, but our contracts would have a clause, and I know there's a lot of companies in Australia that have these clauses that say that we actually cannot discuss our compensation. We are not allowed to talk about how much money we earn. And what we know is, is that when there's no transparency, when there's no open communication, problems and bugs creep in. And particularly when there's no transparency over compensation, that gap of course, widens because people have no benchmark. We need to get into that because that is fascinating. And obviously, uh, you know, I've come from an older generation where when I came through leadership and then senior exec, et cetera, been in the industry now with 28 years or something, showing my age, Maggie, you would never talk about your wage with anyone. And it was fascinating me running an agency with, you know, lots of early 20-year-olds and how they'd all talk about their wages. And I remember us as, you know, the board, we'd sit there and go, they all talk about their wages with each other. That's just weird. We thought it was weird because we're like, no one ever used to talk about that. It was such a private matter. And I grew up also from a family saying, you don't talk about money. That's It's uncouth to talk about money. You don't talk about what someone earns, how much they paid for their car, how much they paid for their house. Whereas I work girlfriends and we're in professional business groups together. All we do is talk about money. How much did you pay for that? What did you do? How much was that client? Like, Because we learn from each other, right? But that's fascinating. And that's a real shift for companies and people to understand that. It is a big leap and it's a generational thing too. And it's interesting, you know, in the United States, there's a few companies here and you can openly look this up. There's a company over here called Buffer, B-U-F-F-E-R, and you can openly Google what anyone in that organization is paid. So you can search via job title, via city, and they have an algorithm and they figure it out. Even before you apply, you know how much you are going to be paid. So what they are effectively doing is taking the negotiation piece out of it, which in part removes some of the imposter syndrome a little bit. And they're saying this is the blanket rule. So what I'm seeing here in the United States, more companies (laughs) move towards this model 
There's another company that tried to do that. And interestingly, it was the employees with more experience who were quite uncomfortable with that. So what they actually shifted to was once you are within the company, it is transparent at that point, including the CEO's wage, by the way. So once you've got the job, once you're in, you can see what Joe Blog sitting next to you, Eugene sitting on the other side of you, you can see what everyone is paid, right, internally. So that kind of takes some of the secrecy out of it as well. So that's actually where I think we will get to. Mm. That's not going to happen overnight, but I would imagine we'll see in the next 10 years that that will be very normal. Certainly at the very least from a company perspective, pay banding is very helpful in terms of pay transparency and, and allowing people to benchmark where they should be. So that that is fairly common, I would say. But yeah, the pay secrecy clauses, in my opinion, are extremely problematic. There was actually some legislation introduced in Australia a few years ago to outlaw it. Unfortunately, that didn't go through. Most um, in the UK, most states in the US, it's now illegal to have those clauses. And in fact, in New York City, if you're an employer, you cannot ask a candidate what their previous salary was. And the reason they've put in place that legislation is to help prevent this pay gap. Because if I have been paid 60 grand for the last five years, and if I thought I was crushing it, doing very well, but in fact, I've been underpaid and I should be paid 75. If I say to a future employer, yeah, look, I've been on 60, I'd really like to be on 65. When in fact, my market rate sits around 75 to 80, then I'm doing myself a disservice. So that's why they've introduced that legislation, which I think is a very positive step Mm. to help protect people against this pay gap that is inadvertently impacting them, right? So there's a lot that can be done at the legislative level. And I think federally and from a state perspective, there's a lot that can be done that I would like to see done. The first amongst being removing those pay secrecy clauses. But then again, you know, the other thing is in terms of moving the needle, and there's mixed data on this, Michelle, as to whether women are less likely to negotiate than men. It's not clear whether that is anecdotally true or actually true data-wise. There's studies that prove either side of the coin. We can find research that will prove whatever argument we want. Mm. But what I will say is for everyone listening, you know, it is important to always be negotiating and it's important to ask for more. You should ask for a raise every single year. Assuming that you're performing, assuming that everything's going well, you know, if you're underperforming, then that's maybe not the right time. But if you're on par or overachieving, of course, you should be asking for a raise. Now, listen, your boss may not give you a raise every year, as is their prerogative, but you should ask the question. You know, I always give the example. I had a client recently and she said, I couldn't possibly ask for a raise. I said, why not? She said, well, Maggie, I asked for a raise six years ago and they said no. So I just, I haven't bothered asking. (laughs) Six years ago? Are you kidding me? That was like 2015. (laughs) So this poor woman has gone six years with no raise. Inflation has probably gone up somewhere between 10 and 20% during that time. So in effect, her salary package has gone backwards. So, you know, you've got to ask the question and listen, a lot of bosses are incentivized if they come in under budget, right? So if you don't ask... They're not always just going to offer. Some of the good ones will, but they're not always going to. But so you really need to be the one who takes control and asks the question. You can ask politely. You can use the data from the Pep Talker app to put forward a very reasonable data-based case as to why. You know, if you've increased sales by 10%, which equates to $150,000, then it's very reasonable for you to ask for a five dollars to $15,000 raise, right? Because the metrics add up. So you've got to put that case forward, but you should absolutely ask the question because 
One thing is true, and we know that if you don't ask the question, the answer will always be the same, and that is that nothing will happen. But if you ask the question, TBD on what the outcome is, you know? Mm-mm. And I think that kind of leads, I'll put in the show notes around all the work you do at Pep Talk Her, helping people to, you know, really navigate this sort of space because many people are uncomfortable to talk about money and many people feel not armed with the right information, I guess, to have those kind of conversations. And to your point before about the data in this sort of space, I mean, I could tell you the thousands and thousands of people that I've managed, there's probably a handful of young women that were, you know, quite proactive in this space that I could, I remember them vividly because they stood out because most of the females that worked would never ever talk about their wage and go through and often yeah we would sort of say okay you're due for a pay rise because of this or what's happening and it's an interesting space I think now obviously with COVID and people losing jobs and feeling lucky that they've got work in some cases so that is a an interesting spot to navigate but I think your core message is you need to ensure that you're not underpaid you are worthy and you should be paid what your value is right you and, you know, one of the things I hear a lot, Michelle, we have more than 60,000 women in the petrol curve community. And one of the things that I hear a lot is women say to me, oh, but I'm already really well paid. I can pay my rent. I go on a holiday once a year. I'm, I'm actually very well looked after. I don't need any more money. I hear that all the time, all the time. And I'm like, I'm stoked for you. I'm so happy for you that you are well paid. But my question is, what if you were really well paid? What if you were excellently paid? What if you were exorbitantly well paid? And they say to me when I drill down, they're like, I would actually rather accept less money if it means I don't need to have an awkward conversation. And I always say like, what awkward conversation is that? And they'll inevitably say the awkward conversation that comes with asking for more money. And so we actually have to do a lot of rewiring of our mentality around this is that it doesn't have to be awkward. And it certainly doesn't have to be confrontational, you know, and and that's a lot of what we teach at Pet Talk Her is that we need to get comfortable talking about money and we need to be comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. And to your point, Michelle, like I know you and I are both in a lot of masterminds and fascinating business groups with excellent, amazing, unbelievable women who have these conversations with us. So the first time you ask for money or practice asking for pay rights should not be with your boss. You know, you should do that with your best friend. You should do that with your brother. I always do it with my dad, a mentor, someone who lives next door to you. I don't care who it is, but do a practice. And we have cheat sheets that I can send people if they want them. That literally says person A says this, person B says this. Because it's funny, you know, even in a practice scenario, you'll feel some of that anxiety coming up around, (gasps) I'm going to ask for a raise. (gasps) I'm going to talk about how awesome I are. What do you mean I have to talk about my successes? And so even in that safe space, which is a fake practice space, you will still feel the feels, right? And that's a good thing because then when you go into the real deal, into your actual boss or into an actual high stakes conversation, your body can cope with that a lot better because that fake anxiety has already happened. I always say to my dad, ask me hard questions, make me cry. Like, please, like, ask me the hardest things because who cares? It's my dad. It doesn't matter. Because that means when I go into the conversation in some very high stakes negotiations, come at me. Like, what's the worst thing you're going to do? You're going to make me cry? Like, bring it. I've already practiced this with my dad at home. We're good. Like, we're ready to go. So practice these conversations in a safe space. Push yourself out of your comfort zone. Stuff it up. Muck it up. Practice. Try things out. Get your roommate to give you feedback. Get your sister to give you feedback. 
And then they can be like, that was terrible. Or your face looked hectic when you said that. Or you can even practice on your own if you want and just film yourself and then watch it back and be like, oh, no, I need to really work on my left eyebrow. (laughs) Yeah, like whatever, whatever it is. Because, like, you've just practiced it. It's, like, going to feel awkward and you're like, Maggie, you're so Mm -hmm. annoying. Why are you making me do these practices? But I promise you when you get into those actual IRL negotiations, you'll then feel way calmer, more prepared and more confident because you Mm. will have swatted away a heap of that imposter syndrome so that you're just going to put your best foot forward. Love it. What a great way to uh, bring this full circle. Meggie, as always, it's just such a delight to talk to you. I've been missing you desperately in Australia. Please come home soon. Please come and visit in New York City. Look me up. I'm on on the Instagrams, all of the things. If people are in town, look me up, send me a DM and let me know. I'd love to hear your stories and we'll be cheering you all on from the sidelines. Uh, Awesome. Thanks so much. There's so many great tips today. Just a delight to chat to you. You you are so welcome. Talk to you soon. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you'll find all the show notes and interesting links on our website, wabisabiseries.com. If you'd like to hear more unexpected conversations, please subscribe to the series, follow us on our socials, or grab one of my books. And if you're in a generous mood, I'd love you to share the episode, or maybe even rate, review, and comment on the series. It really does make a difference. Until next time, be sure to claim your own piece of wabi-sabi and walk proud in your perfect imperfection.